Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Good morning, Maura. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles to talk about your book, um, Happily Ever Older. And um, before we start, if we can, if I can just get you just to say a few things about yourself. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me, Wendy. I really appreciate it. And I have been a journalist at the Toronto Star for a very long time, since the early 1990s, and started actually writing about long-term care in the early 2000s and have been following it ever since. So it's become um, a bit of uh, a passion for me, I guess, to to work on these stories and in many different ways. So um, I appreciate you talking with me about my book, which is really the outcome of uh, many years of journalism. Yes, thank you so much for that. And we'll start. So your book looked at different options, models of long-term care in which we'll discuss later. But for right now, in terms of one of the themes that came through was for me, was the value of residents and staff and caregivers from these different model types that everyone's input was important. Um, Even though this wasn't, you know, probably an objective, why do you think these different models of care really brought this forth? The focus of all of these models of care, and I've sort of said they all share a similar DNA, which is putting the resident first, the resident emotions and their individual interests first so they can live a full life. And in doing so, the main way to succeed in that is to put the staff first as well. So it was a recurring theme to me when speaking to the leaders of all these different homes, they all said, if the staff are happy, the residents are happy. And ultimately, what it did was it gave um, both workers and residents purpose in their lives. And I thought that was a really interesting piece of this, because um, as we try to attract more people and and, uh, good people, thoughtful caregivers to the field, um, I think that the there's going to be a, a greater emphasis or a greater ability, I should say, to attract more people when they feel like there's a purpose um, to the work that they do. It's not just sort of assembly line caregiving, but it's caregiving where you can actually make a difference in the lives of the residents and their families. Yeah, definitely. I definitely got that as well. So, and as well, you touched on the loneliness of residents and that what residents would go through because of that. And when you went over to Malton Village, a retired policeman from Jamaica, and how when management moves to change, uh, better outcomes are achieved. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was um, a a really interesting piece. And Maxwell Maxwell McCoy is his name. And he was... um, he just his story told a lot, I think, and he has advanced dementia. And I'm able to have permission to speak openly about him, obviously. But he really, uh, for the most part, as the program was unfolding there, and just to back up for one second, I, I spent a number of months in the home as the program was as, as workers were being trained behind the scenes. So I was able to see what a good home actually looks like, before it actually transformed itself in, into a a different approach to care. And so this is a municipal home. It, you know, it was a very good home, but it was empty of life. 
And so that's sort of indicative here. You have a, a quite a, you know, a good home, but still there was nothing going on during the day other than the scheduled events. And that was it. And so there was a lot of restlessness among people or just people sitting and staring at the floor. And so Maxwell um, has advanced dementia and he did basically sit in his chair with his eyes closed for most of the time. So as the program unfolded, the workers started to feel more empowered. It takes time, but they started to feel more empowered. So they would spend time with him and it just, it sort of evolved slowly. Nothing happens overnight. And they would start by perhaps massaging his hands and just speaking very closely to him um, because he was just in a very sort of quiet state. And as time progressed, uh, workers would stop me when I came in and they would say, you won't believe this. You know, he opened his eyes today and he looked right at me. And they would sort of tell me as time progressed, the changes that he made and the way he came back to life in a sense. And they were so proud of themselves and they would have tears in their eyes because this was such an accomplishment for them. And so Maxwell's experience was indicative of many other um, residents' experiences as well. There was another man who would, when um, basically also advanced dementia, so he really didn't move. And when he was having a shower, used to be that the workers would, you know, bathe him, wash his face and so on. Eventually he grabbed the washcloth from them and did it on his own. So, and so he was able then to care for himself. It's a small way, comparatively speaking, but it was a, a, a great advance from their perspective. And it showed them that this was worth pursuing and to keep moving forward. Definitely, because I mean, even just those small things makes a huge, um, a huge thing. So, and then you as well looked at the greenhouse project, which was the smaller household and more inclusive with, but there were some key takeaways that, um, that you could speak to with like, again, you're mentioning again, the staff being empowered and residents were not just an assembly line on in the schedule. Can you just speak a little bit more to that? Yes, the greenhouse, I went to a greenhouse home just outside of Rochester in a, a city called Penfield. So this was a home that was in a suburban residence or neighborhood, basically. So um, there were two households connected through a courtyard and 10 private bedrooms with private washrooms on in each home. And the greenhouse has uh, its model has a focus on the hearth. So there's a big fireplace in all of its homes. And then there's a big open kitchen and a long table where everyone would sit and eat family style and pass around the food. Very similar to the approach taken by the butterfly model in, in Peel region and many other, but not all homes. And, and so this is just a lovely small household. And the people I spoke with there um, talked about feeling like the workers didn't speak over their head when they were helping them with care, perhaps getting up, waking, awakening in the morning. You could, they could awake, awaken whenever they wished. If you want to sleep in till 10 o'clock, you can sleep in till 10 o'clock. That's perfectly fine. But instead of workers sort of chatting with each other about, you know, what I'm going to do tomorrow night, um, they were actually connecting with the individual resident and talking about their needs. And also the home, because it was small, they were able to develop friendships with each other, other residents and the staff again. So a very close knit group of people, staff who stayed for a long time and actually 
uh, Greenhouse has had a lot of studies uh, done on, on its work, and they found some significant outcomes, which in many ways reflect the other homes, but Greenhouse is certainly very well researched, and they found that there was uh, great, greater relationships between workers and families and residents, um, fewer people who were left in their beds, uh, 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 fewer pressure ulcers and other sort of um, medical issues. So it turns out that it's a, a much healthier lifestyle. And as we also saw during the first wave of COVID, there were studies that showed that the infections in small households like greenhouse and the deaths were significantly lower than these, these bigger household models. And the other piece that's really interesting about this, again, small households are not just um, only used by greenhouse, but they really do create a familiar, normal lifestyle for people. And so for people with cognitive decline who are already um, in some ways terrified of this shifting world around them, when you enable them to live in a space that is very familiar to the way that we've always lived, then that's a very calming for people. And so a lot of homes have said, you know, these so-called so behavioral problems that many homes say, or the industry says, have diminished significantly, as has the use of antipsychotic medication. So there's a real link between the design of a home and the emotional well-being of the residents and the workers as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Because I can only imagine it just makes it seem, as you said, more home-like, so more familiar to them. And it doesn't seem as you know, scary to them at all. And with dementia care, when a loved one requires to go into long-term care and the person or family does not have the resources for memory care facilities because they can be very expensive, you wrote of Park Springs and Pebble Brook and the butterfly model and the words that are used to describe the staff and again, being more resident focused. How can that be, you know, kind of accomplished here in Canada or even on Ontario? So we're doing that in some ways in Ontario with Butterfly. There are municipal and for-profit homes that are starting to roll this out. And a lot of that was delayed during because of COVID. So there's really only, um, I think, just a few, very few homes that have the full model and fully accredited. The others had to stop very early on. So they're, they're just starting up again. But to answer your question, there, there are many different ways. I mean, I think some homes are motivated to actually do this and they have very uh, strong leaders who are really pushing for change. And there are some homes who I, I doubt will have the same motivation. So I think what I've been talking about with other people is the need for, well, to start at the top for national standards that include a recognition with measurements attached to financing. So the recognition of the rights of people to live in long-term care with, um, so that their individual interests are recognized so that they have freedom of movement, for example, to go outside in nature because so many spend their, the remainder of their lives locked away. They never feel the sunshine, so to speak, on, on their skin again, or, uh, you know, nature has played such an important role um, in our well-being. And there are other pieces that national standards could look at, but then when you get to the provincial level, we need new regulations that also recognize this so that when inspectors go to the home, they're not just looking at, you know, the, the temperature of the, the food or, you know, 
other items on, on this long, very long checklist, they're looking, for example, at care plans to see how those individual needs of each resident are met. And so they're able to measure homes based on the resident-focused care that the, the residents would receive. And I think that's a really important piece of it because unless we change the regulations and hold homes to account, that's not going to change. And while we need better inspections, in many ways, we're not inspecting the right items right now. And so it's not just enough to have more annual inspections. We have to change how we're inspecting. Definitely, I agree with that. And, and definitely agree with the fact that it's, it's for facilities, it's really the management in terms of the driving force for change within the facility or home, because without that, without that backing, nothing will really move forward with it. I mean, even if there are managers that are focused for it, it still needs the administrator to really push it forward through. So that's good. And again, you touched upon, because this goes into the next question about the whole, the conversation right now with the re-imaging of long-term care. And how do you think you've mentioned about inspections um, to be able to have that change? Uh, can you just, I mean, I know that you've investigated a lot. Can you speak to, I guess, what have worked, what has worked in some jurisdictions that are actually being implanted across the board instead of, you know, in some municipalities or costly long-term, private long-term care? Uh, so, so I looked at homes in all jurisdictions, and none of them really had regulations that said person-centered care. These are homes that individually chose to move forward with this. What's interesting is that they could do it in spite of whatever their regulatory regime was. They were able to manage this. So I, I think that's sort of an important distinction around that. And, for example, in Ontario, um, People, I think a lot of people are concerned, operators of homes or managers of homes have said, you know, we don't want to get in trouble with the ministry. We don't want violations. But what they're doing is they're almost self-editing um, the work that they do in, in a sense. And, and so what I have found is that people, um, leaders in homes from Peel Region to um, uh, Primacare Living, which also implemented Butterfly, and now the COO, Jill Knowlton, she's a nurse, um, has moved to Jarlette um, chain, which has about 15 homes, and she's going to be implementing the same program there, starting, I believe, in September um, with one home. Nonetheless, um, what it takes is conversations with the, um, the ministry here. I'll talk about Ontario for a second. So people have been afraid, for example, that you can't sit at a long table, family style table like they do in Butterfly. And that was one of the issues in Peel region. So um, Peel's leaders called the ministry and spoke to them and, and you know worked it out and it was fine. Then there were issues around um, the most of the food is supposed to be served on a steam table, like a cafeteria style hospital. Well, that's not conducive to home living, but a lot of homes are afraid you can't break the ministry, the, the regulations. But um, what Peel Region found was that they spoke to the ministry and that if you put hot plates on the table, it was, the food can be kept at a certain temperature and there are staff sitting with residents eating so it's safe, then it's fine because it meets the spirit of the regulation. And that's the key piece of it. As long as the, the food is kept warm, then that's really what the regulation was seeking. So I think um, in many ways people um, it helps to sort of open your mind to the ability to work within the system. 
And while at the same time, I think that Ontario's regulatory system needs to be um, revamped to allow these models of care. And actually the, um, the Long-Term Care Commission in its final report said that person-centered care was at the foundation of all of its recommendations. And it, it suggested that the ministry promote and fund these models of care in all long-term care homes. I would go further and suggest that the regulations require this because I do think that some homes simply won't go down that path. Definitely. Um, no, thank you for that. Absolutely. I totally agree. And now you as well looked at the Dutch model that you wrote as that was considered to be, you know, the gold standard. And as you wrote in your book, it's the Disneyland of dementia, um, where, you know, you saw a different, a different approach to care. And what would you say makes it so much better to have for that type of a model in regards to dementia? And what should the government, um, you know, looked at other than just, you know, the locked units, secured units for people with dementia? And um, it's so interesting, the, the comment about Disneyland for dementia, that was the point that was made by somebody who said, oh, you know, you're going there, um, because there'd been a lot of early media uh, about Dehogovic. And, um, you know, it just seemed to sort of um, not really know what to do with this new model of care. So I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to see when I when I arrived there, but it was actually um, a very lovely home. And what was so special about Dehogovic um, a few things. Again, very tiny households. There are 27 and they are um, have six or seven people living in each home. And um, the homes are um, sort of broken up into uh, styles of living that would be more natural to individuals. So some people um, might have come from a very urban area. Others might have been um, quite wealthy. So they would have perhaps, you know, linen tablecloths as opposed to um, something very vibrant and, and unique, perhaps from the urban area. I'm not sure that we would break up our households in such a way. I think we would have a different approach to that. But certainly, the special thing about Dehogovic is freedom. And so it is an enclosed village model. It's on several acres and people can leave their homes and walk outside and sit in a courtyard, sit in a cafe. They can walk along like little sort of walkways and um, spend time in the gardens. And to me, it was the freedom piece of it that, and the ability to be outside um, that made all the difference for, um, for me seeing this and certainly for the residents who live there because so many people, as you just said, are locked away. They don't have these opportunities. They don't have the ability to burn off energy like many of us do. And so then they're reprimanded in a sense by a system that says they have these behaviors when really who wouldn't um, act out uh, out of boredom if we were forced to sit in a chair all day long and do absolutely nothing. And I saw the same piece related to freedom in um, North Carolina at Carol Woods. And they were had a very inclusive model there, but people were able to go outside uh, people with fairly significant dementia were often out gardening, they would walk. And there's a story that I love to tell because I think it's so indicative of the power of freedom is a gentleman who um, had pretty significant dementia. He was able to walk around uh, the trails in the forest every day. And there were a group of 
resident volunteers who would you know walk with him but give him his space and when he came back he would visit the ceo's office and tell her about his morning and everything was good and safe but she said to me if he was in a locked memory unit imagine what he would have behaved like and, and that just says it all definitely yeah definitely based on what i've seen as well yes that's 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 great and finally like with this pandemic, it's exposed to not only just the caregivers and the family members, but to the greater society of the realities of what is happening in the long-term care sector. Do you think now we are finally at a moment where this sector will finally change? If we don't change now, I don't think we ever will. I think this is the opportunity. We've got this great public awareness right now of the incredible flaws within many homes. Some homes did a good job at protecting, but they were very proactive and many simply did not. And I think it exposed this incredible widespread ageism that the system has. It's not just society, but it was systemic ageism actually that allowed people to die just because simply they're old, not knowing you know, how many more years of life they would have in them. We just allowed seniors to, to die from this virus. Um, the other piece that uh, the COVID exposed was the incredible need for people to have emotional connections. And because of the lockdowns, the social isolation, the loneliness that people felt, many withered from that. So I think publicly, we were all exposed to these issues at the same time that the first wave of the boomer generation is turning 75. And people are really waking up to the future and how some of us, not all of us, but some of us, if we end up being vulnerable and nobody can really you know, predict what may happen to our health, how we may live. And so we could harness this energy now to really push for powerful change. If we don't, then I think this opportunity will probably have slipped away. No, thank you for that. That's uh, right to the point. And uh, I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and sharing your experiences on your book that you've written. And thank you so much, Maura. Thank you, Wendy, for having me. I appreciate your, your interest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you liked it, please make sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you're listening to podcasts.